A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 118 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman, and with me like the race to my rogues, the EU guru himself, the count of continuity, Mr. Nathan B. Butler! Hey, everybody. I'm assuming that simply means I'm funnier. This is true. This is true. You know, I... I guess in a lot of ways that is one of the major differences between the rogues and the race. <laughs> They're books at least, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things I, I must say I absolutely have loved about the race above all. Well, and, you know, some of the world building kind of for me worked a little more. But before we get into all that, I just kind of want to take a moment and, and kind of possibly discuss the point of Star Wars Beyond the Films. You know, we're a podcast. We explore the relationship of each Star Wars Expanding Universe work as it fits in with the saga as a whole. Now, as a whole, we're not just talking the films and the TV canon alone, mind you. It's part of what we do, and we here, we try to educate the listeners. Uh, with as many new fans, they might not recognize this for what it is, but when you've been around as long as 10 plus years in this fandom of Star Wars, you will find many things that you've enjoyed are often overwritten in time or cast aside for something new, something fresh, something more easily accessible to newer, more casual fans. When you just enter the fandom, whatever event happens to be there at that moment, that tends to be your golden age. Mine, for example, was the New Jedi Order. Others, it's the prequel trilogy only, or the Clone Wars, or even some of those that like the the uh, Gendi Clone Wars run. That's not to say, though, that we don't love this stuff. We do. And sharing what we love, finding annoying, or all that, it's all part of the process. We didn't create this universe. We didn't create the web of chaos that followed. And sometimes I think people mistake our passion for negativity, which can be funny it's for me especially since you know i've been accused of being too positive about a great many negative things here in the past you know take example you know rumors and reports of episode 7 and the lack of detail of the eu for example you know i wouldn't be so concerned about all of this if someone would just flat out say that they you know what they did with the marvel franchise those movies will exist in their own universe or that they plan on continuing on with the lucas model yeah i said the lucas model you know it's a premise he set you know he allowed it by letting today's story overwrite yesterday's i didn't just make that up and if they continue to use the lucas model that's fine too but what is the fate of the eu set post return of the jedi you know what is the plan what is the plan when the films won't line up sure we can speculate and say we'll all become an alternate universe which i'll be fine with but i want to hear it from an official source not another fan who's also speculating I mean, you know, these are some of the little things that I think, you know, we as fans, we got to remember here. I mean, you know, lately we've been kind of accused of being super negative about things. And I don't think we're being negative. I think it's just the side of our fandom, the passion that we have coming out. I mean, sometimes, yeah, we'll be at conflicts with other people's point of views. But Star Wars Beyond the Films will continue even if the EU as we know it comes to an end. These books, they won't die. You know, we've talked about that before. Many will remain ignorant to the stories and adventures that took place in that universe. So they're going to need to be educated. And, 
you know, we go over these things, we talk about them, and part of the fun of this for us is, especially with the comics, is if you have these comics, bust them open while we're doing the podcast. It's part of what we're doing. You know, we're going from panel to panel, skipping through the story. I mean, you know, we're two friends having a blast, and we're sharing it with you. Yeah, sometimes we have some tongue-in-cheek moments where we're poking at things and we're really gashing at certain things. But again, you know, it, it's a shared universe, and that's part of what happens when you come there. You know, as well as all this new stuff that may spin out of the films, it's all just a chaotic time. As if you were the saga, you too are beyond the films. So don't worry. We're not going anywhere. The show's not going anywhere. You know, things are, are looking up, even though it's looking down at times. You know, I just want to put that out there real fast before we get moving on. That's right. And I would say that it's not a question of positivity or negativity, really, at least from my perspective. Uh, Mark mentions having been a fan and following things for about 10 years and whatnot, and, and the New Jedi Order sort of being his golden age. For me, I mean, Star Wars has been part of my life since as early as I can remember, and the expanded universe has been, not counting a few brief forays into early Marvel stuff for me, uh, has been a big part of my fandom since 1992, uh, when Dark Force Rising was released. And I've been doing a lot of my fandom projects, like the Star Wars Timeline Gold, in that arena for much of my life. I mean, but when I, if I'm understanding correctly, if I did the math right, in two years when I turned 36, I will have been doing my Star Wars Timeline project for half my life, 18 years. Um, wow. I started it uh, right as my senior year of high school was starting, actually, back in Indiana. Um, and he's right. There's a lot of times where you will see stories that wind up getting uh, tweaked or changed or contradicted or, or sort of uh, run over, in Lucas's case, in some cases. Um, but it's all just kind of par for the course. I mean, this is what an expanded universe is, especially when you have a creator out there, whether it's Lucas or Disney, a creator out there with sort of the fundamental control of a saga who is still producing things as opposed to having ret long retired so that everything is simply expanded universe. Uh, and when you have an EU, you're going to have massive deviations in quality and in some cases contradictory information. That's sort of uh, the rub of having a franchise designed around comics and books and video games and television series and films uh, and having so many projects going on at once. Now that started to slow down now as we're leading into Rebels in Episode 7 uh, and we see Del Rey has no more Star Wars books on their schedule until January of 2015 with the Luke Skywalker uh, Empire and Rebellion book. Uh, Dark Horse Comics is winding things down, so their last new original story issues should be coming out this August. But prior to this winding down, we constantly had multiple comic series all going on at the same time, sometimes comic series in similar eras going on at the same time. Novels, the same thing. We've got a a bunch of nine-book and one 19-book series out there which require writers to be writing at the same time using story points plotted out in advance. Uh, and that can be a difficult thing for a writer. Um, on a much, much smaller standpoint, that's basically what I was doing when I wrote my two Wars novellas. And that's a much smaller franchise, and there was a much more tight-knit group of writers working on it. Me, uh, Sean Williams... Uh, Sabrina Fry, Jim Perry, and so forth. And yet still, you know, there are things you must make sure get hit in your book that match up with these others. And it's a frustrating process sometimes when you're trying to deal with continuity and such, writing simultaneously for something that would be released consecutively. Um, 
the point being that there are going to be flaws in the system. There are going to be flaws that happen. It's just kind of the way that things work. Sometimes it's continuity. Sometimes it's uh, copy editing. Uh, in one case, uh, we wound up with one error in something that I submitted for the Essential Atlas. One of the dates is, uh, is thrown off. One of the, the in-universe uh, digital calendar dates is off. Uh, I forget if it's by a year or by a couple of years because of uh, getting some numbers transposed and such. Um, it's just kind of one of these things that's part and parcel to a publishing franchise. But on this show, we don't try to be either the doomsayer or the cheerleader. Um, I think be being a cheerleader... It's not what I signed on for, quite frankly. Um, I actually think that more recently, we're probably, with the exception of our coverage of the Rebellion and Dark Times bits of Vector, we seem to, in a lot of cases, be sounding like cheerleaders because we are so fond of, say, Legacy or John Jackson Miller's work and such, which happens to be some of the stuff we've been covering lately. In fact, this whole idea of not having to always be the cheerleader is actually something I was concerned with when I got a chance to write for Star Wars Tales. Um, I flat out asked Jeremy Barlow when he gave me the opportunity. I said, look, you know, if I do this, can my fandom projects continue? Can my timeline continue? And more importantly at the time, my podcasting. I was doing Chrono Radio at the time, which if you've ever heard it, was a heck of a lot more abrasive at times and opinionated at times, fiery, sort of Dennis Miller-esque in his old self, um, uh, than, than this podcast has ever been. And... The argument was that I would prefer objectivity and being able to call things as they are as opposed to being able to be the cheerleader. Does the Lucasfilm implant, so to speak, apply? Um, and the answer was no, that it's essentially a freelance thing. I'm welcome to continue doing that. Um, I've fought for that over the years. To me, that's an issue of, and you've heard this plenty of times on the show if you've listened for a long time, of intellectual honesty. It's not about being all positive or all negative. It's being able to recognize there is both in just about anything and taking a much more pragmatic look at things. Not but kissing, but also not necessarily always but kicking. Uh, making it a point to be objective, intellectually honest, trying to frame the debate and the issues that arise in a realistic way. If something has a lot of chronological errors and such in it, like, say, Coruscant Nights, it should be called out on it. Um, if something is exceptional at pulling things together and interweaving a bunch of different sources, like, say, the Darth Plagueis novel, it should be lauded for it. Same thing if we have a whole bunch of uh, uh, copy editing errors, tons and tons of misspellings of things that a spell checker wouldn't catch but a human would, uh, like what was happening around the early 2000s with some of Dark Horse's comics and such. Um, and I know the argument is, well, after these things are already published, Criticizing things that are valid criticisms, whether it's copy editing, continuity, storytelling, or whatever, doesn't do any good. It is what it is because it's already out there. But that's essentially giving up. We have a responsibility as fans of a particular property to keep the quality level high by demanding higher standards in terms of quality level. And sometimes those of us who have that opportunity to have our voices heard, whether it's through a podcast or whatever, um, can make a difference. There have been several times recently, thanks to us receiving early copies, early advanced reader copies of Star Wars novels from Del Rey, that I've been able to email them with issues that arose in those stories to make sure that it was fixed for the final book. Jaina's age back in Crucible was screwed up until I emailed them. Um, there were some issues like Darth Maul all of a sudden magically having his double-bladed lightsaber at one point within a mall lockdown where he doesn't have it with him the entire story. Um, things like that 
And opportunities like that are rare. But we as fans do get heard from time to time. So it's not a matter of being positive or negative. It's a matter of being essentially pragmatic, realistic, intellectually honest, and I would hope entertaining in discussing those things. Uh, sometimes it'll go to places that people are frustrated by. And other times it may seem like we're nitpicking on something. But we try to take a well-rounded view of things so that we're hitting it from a lot of different perspectives. Beyond the films does mean beyond the films. And mainly expanded universe type things. Or the Clone Wars. Things beyond the Star Wars live action films. But at the same time, there's a lot of different approaches one could take in what they do beyond the films. Some like looking at comics for the art, some for the writing, some are more into the novels, some are more into the games, and we try to wrap all those together within the scope of our own interests here. Um, I know, Mark, in your case, this was prompted by a an iTunes review that had you banging your head on the desk a little bit, um, but I think it's good every once in a while to just kind of stop, pause, and reintroduce folks to the concept behind the show, especially given that we probably have quite a few people new who are going to be jumping over from a public forces radio network when we launch Rebels Roundtable. And that is the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the one announced and set up on social media back in November of last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, it used to be where continuity errors and things like that were few and far between. And if we move forward into a new era where that's changed, hey, I'm fine for it. You know, I mean, I, I take Defender of the EU kind of very seriously because there are a lot of good out there. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, there's a lot of bad out there, but the same can be said for every Star Wars product. I mean, you know, we've gone over this before, and I and I believe that that, too, is, is kind of one of the complaints. But at the end of the day, Star Wars fandom is only going to get so big, and we're going to go back over a lot of these topics because they're always going to apply. You know, I mean, even if they start a new universe, are they going to keep the story within its own continuity? I mean, once you start breaking away from that... You know, then you get to that era of of Star Trek novels, you know, when when today's book, this ensign dies and all of a sudden the next book that follows it, he's alive again. You know, it, that's what I don't want to see, because that's when when you get taken out of it. You know, like I was, I was just talking to my wife about this last night. I mean, you know, th this is something near and dear to my heart. And for me, Luke Skywalker's adventure has always been it. Uh, you know, New Jedi Order came, like I said, for me, one of my favorite series because Leia finally took the stand-up role that I had been waiting for. Now, if they decide to do something totally new where Leia becomes a Jedi much sooner, I'll be okay with that. But again, don't make me sit down December 18th to figure this out. Now, I've had people tell me, well, they've they've already put out there that they're not going to do this. And, I, and I've asked, you know, send me the link because everything I've only seen is going back to that original story quote where they said, we're going to do an original story. Well, folks, Razor's Edge was an original story. Didn't connect to anything. And yet it still fits in the EU. So, I mean, you know, I, I just as and it's, I don't see the smoking gun that says it's dead yet. And because of that I'm trying so desperately hard to be positive about it. And it's hard right now. I mean, there's so much out there that points that it's all going to get kind of swept away. And for me, that's really sad because that's my bread and butter. I always kind of took solace in the fact that Lucas had no intention of moving on beyond episode six. So I was just like, that was safe. You know, that was like my, you know, a lot of people went back into the KOTOR era because they felt like that was their safe place to dwell. Well, no, nothing can get messed up there. Hey, you guys were smarter than I because I went to the other end and I didn't expect Lucas to ever sell the saga. So here I sit in a kind of bipolar state. You know, and I apologize for that because, yeah, my emotions get away with me sometimes or I'll hop on the Internet while I'm heavily medicated because of strep throat. You know, it, it's it's part of human nature. It's part of the fandom. You know, you guys, we got to just learn that, you know, the reactions and stuff, 
That's part of it. Places like Rift Tracks wouldn't be so successful if people didn't find humor in the negativity that comes along with these things. Uh, Nathan, you shared something on Facebook the other day about uh, Thor 2 and all the movie sins. And oh my God, like I, I, I love Thor 2. But when I was watching that video, I was laughing my butt off because they had some legitimate points. And, you know, I think we got to keep that in mind as well. That, you know, that sometimes there's a tongue in cheek aspect of the negativity that that. Yes, if it's something that you love that's being the negative site, and, and a lot of the times it's the prequel fans that really get it. But I think you prequel fans can kind of appreciate and relate where I'm coming from here because out of all the casual fans, you're the closest to an EU fan. I mean, you get the backlash from all the casual, oh, the prequels were just a failure. I don't think that. But when I talk to a lot of casual people that, that aren't Star Wars fans, that's what they think. You know, I can't get my mom to sit down and watch a Star Wars film because she thinks that Lucas kept messing with his own stuff. She will not watch anything else because of that, because the Star Wars she watched is gone. And it's like, you know, there are fans out there like that too. There's just, you know, it's their way or the highway. And so I just try to point out, you know, we're about opening my mind's eyes, explaining, teaching, kind of, you know, exploring the universe that was there and the universe that's coming. And, you know, all of that is what kind of put us on this road in the first place. And beyond the films is going to be a fun place. You know, I mean, yeah, we may come down on some things from time to time. But at the end of the day, this is a fun ride. You got a ticket and you're coming aboard. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look back on the works of the great Aaron Alston. He recently passed away February 27th of this year, 2014. A man whose legacy has left an unfillable void in our fandom and in our hearts. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Now this was something that uh, caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, probably not as much of a surprise as um, for some authors if they had passed in the same way. Uh, you may know that Aaron Alston had had uh, surgery, uh, I think it was quadruple bypass surgery back in 2009. Um, in fact, in Backlash, he even refers to in the little uh, dedication, essentially, for all the people that had helped him through that tough time in 2009. So he'd had some health problems before. And it was on February 27th of uh, 2014 when a message popped up on Sean Patrick Fannin's Facebook page that made what is now thought of as the official announcement. I uh, said, it's my devastatingly sad duty to announce I've just gotten confirmation. Aaron Alston passed away tonight after collapsing at VisionCon. Apparent cause of death is massive heart failure. He was a friend and mentor and one of the very best of us. Heartbroken only begins to describe how I feel. I think that whole the very best of us thing is something that has been one of the more resonating things recently uh, after Aaron Alston passed away. I've never had the chance yeah. to meet the man in person. Um, one of our fellow podcasters, someone that I had a chance to, to hang out with a few times at Con Carolinas, is, uh, well, she's the author that now is going under the name Janine Spendlove. She was one of the original three hosts of Requiem of the Outcast, a podcast started by Rich Sigmund. In fact, it was the first Star Wars fan audio genre uh, 
online radio show, so to speak, to embrace the idea of podcasting. Not today where we say podcast as if any online audio file or even video, which is not really what a podcast was originally designed to be, um, or something on YouTube is thought of as a podcast if it's simply an online broadcast. Um, podcasting was this idea of, you know, the distribution method and RSS feeds and iTunes and all that, and that was really the team that first embraced that. As she sort of moved into writing and has done quite a bit uh, in recent years, he, in a lot of ways, was someone who was a mentor to her in a lot of ways. And between her and other people I've spoken to uh, and seen their reactions to this, it seems as though Aaron Austin is, I mean, obviously he's not a perfect person. No one is. But it seems as though most people would say that he was never someone who seemed to have a crossword for anybody. He was someone who was able to just kind of enjoy his profession, enjoy meeting with the fans, uh, enjoy the creative process, and in a lot of ways was just sort of a paragon of what someone in that genre uh, and that profession should be. This is a guy who was a game designer uh, for many, many years, uh, who worked on things like, uh, oh gosh, he worked on uh, Dungeons and Dragons, he edited Space Gamer magazine at one point, he helped uh, found a, a later game magazine. He does. He's done a lot of uh, things in the gaming world, started writing original fiction novel style fiction um, in 1988, and then joined the Star Wars publishing line uh, in 1998. And I think one of the things that, that I'm going to focus on mostly as we're speaking a, about his career and about his impact on Star Wars here is the fact that this is a guy who is thought of as one of the biggest names in Star Wars expanded universe storytelling, hands down, one of the biggest names. Yeah. And yet, his contributions actually aren't nearly as big as his reputation within Star Wars fandom would seem to suggest. This is a guy who wrote 13 Star Wars novels. Uh, Wraith Squadron, Iron Fist, Solo Command, Starfighters of Adumar, and Mercy Kill within the X-Wing line. Two New Jedi Order novels, Enemy Lines Rebel Dream and Enemy Lines Rebel Stand. He wrote three of the books alternating with different authors in both Legacy of the Force and Fate of the Jedi. So we're talking Betrayal, Exile, and Fury from Legacy of the Force, Outcast, Backlash, and Conviction from Fate of the Jedi. And beyond that, just two Star Wars short stories. League of Spies, and Betrayal. He didn't even write the short story that was designed to tie into Mercy Kill that appeared in the pages of Star Wars Insider, which I believe was written by Karen Miller. And yet, with a relatively short scope of works here, you know, compared to some others, like, say, uh, a writer Wyndham, um, someone who's doing a lot of, of, of work but never major novels, uh, or someone like a... Oh, gosh. It's, Jude it's, Watson? Like, like a Jude Watson. Um... This is a guy whose impact is huge, and I'm not even sure that his impact is huge because of his stories, but so much as of the feel of fun that he was able to bring back into Star Wars in such a way that even the darkest stories a lot of times had the moments that made you smile because they reminded you of the humor embedded within the classic trilogy as opposed to the humor that was sort of in your face with Jar Jar stepping on poop in the prequels. So I think my theme here... I. I don't want to downplay his contributions to Star Wars, but I think that a theme you're going to hear as we talk about this for me is that this is a guy who certainly was a quality over quantity person 
when it comes to Star Wars writing. He made an impact based on the quality of what he presented, not so much the quantity. And as we go along, I'll point out some specifics about the things that we tend to think a major big-name Star Wars writer must have been part of that he wasn't. And yet, we still have that sense that he was everywhere, uh, in a sense. I, I mean that in the best possible way. Um, his impact certainly reaches beyond the sum of the parts of the saga that were his. Yeah, I mean, most of my favorite X-Wing books all came from him. Uh, the way he world-built, you know, the way, like you said, the humor and stuff, the way it was all infused together and came together just worked in such a classic Star Wars way that really made you just jump right in. I mean, it was pretty much every one of his books that I ever remember opening. It was like within the first two chapters, I couldn't set them down. And I, and I think that that was, was always kind of the feeling I had for Aaron's works. You know, I always wanted more. And, you know, knowing other people in fandom that got to meet him, seeing pictures with him, hearing all these great things about him, you know, I mean, I, that, that was one of the selfish losses on my end was knowing that he's not going to be at Celebration 7. I was really looking forward to meeting him. Odds were he would probably have been there, uh, you know, and, and he was one of those must, must meet, must get a picture opportunities for me i mean you know I, I love that he always had like one of the hawaiian style shirts on you know those button down shirts you know classic theme his hair everywhere i mean you know he was a guy that was just kind of you know go with the flow and it, it came across in his books the characters and stuff you know the different attitudes and things like that he got people and, and that's one thing i always came across with everyone i've talked to was was how caring and how genuine he was uh, you know, for me on on February 27th, the one that I remember was uh, Mary Miller posting on his page, quote, this is not a hoax. I need anyone who has contact information for someone for Aaron Alston to call me ASAP. He's collapsed at VisitCon. I need to reach someone. He's been taken to the hospital. Please call me. And she leaves her number. And I, I mean, I remember when I first saw that was like, oh, oh, God, please don't let this be something bad, you know? I mean, because I, I remember the 2009 and that kind of stuff, you know, and I, I've seen some people bounce back from some pretty hairy, carry things. So, you know, the prayers were immediately going out, that kind of stuff. And I mean, it, it's, you know, it's hard for me to put in words because I've never met this man and the emotional feelings I have for his works. I mean, you know, you see that kind of reaction happening to people all the time. And you're like, wow, look, that, that fan's a little fanatical. Their author died and they're just hysterical. And I mean, there is a part of me that is, is just in a room just freaking out about it because I enjoyed his work so much. And like I said, I'm, I'm the, the future Luke fan and, and he was producing that kind of stuff. You know, he had a hand with that, with Denning and, and stuff. And you know, I was always looking forward to the new books and more books that were going to come down the road and that kind of stuff. And, you know, to, to see what he may get to do. He was always one of those names, you know, that we were always throwing at, at the people at Delray and stuff. More Aaron, more Alston. We need more Alston, that kind of stuff. But, you know, yeah, when, when we bring up the list of, of the works and stuff, I, I think the reason why his impact is so big is because most of those books are, are ones that so many people really love i mean you know race squadron was a great book uh you know iron fist was also good starfighters of Adamar, epic little i mean that that's like one of the best x-wing books out there in, in the way it rolls with all the different characters excuse me uh the enemy lines books loved what he did with nyx lord nyx was such a cool character and such a brilliant way to retcon or bring back eric uh Ur Urshima or whatever his name ergum i can't even 
pronounce it. You know me in last names. But anyway, uh, Eric, he, he had his mom was one of the uh, Emperor's hands and stuff from, uh, I believe it was Children of the Jedi. Uh, he was the kid from that one that had been experimented on. And, and the things that he did with him, I mean, that was one of the most intense villains and that was in the middle of the series. Like, you know, and, and one of the things I always had loved about the New Jedi Order was like, you know, you had Naminor, the villain that kind of followed you through kind of thing. And then you had Nyax that was kind of like this General Grievous in the middle of it all. It was like, who is this guy? What is he doing? And the things that, that came forward with the, the the spear with the force well underneath it, underneath the temple and all those things. They were all questions that I had for him that, that I really hope some fan out there was able to ask him and get answers to that kind of stuff. Because I, I, I'm never going to get that opportunity. And I've always been curious about that because, you know, these were the things that he created that were just so great. I, Ray Squadron, when, when he takes that hammerhead and the way he has Wedge and Kel and them modify that, to this day, that's one of my favorite ships. I, I think they called it the Nightcaller or something like that. They they uh, modified the underneath and, and the hole and all that and, and the way Piggy got on board. I mean, just it was all brilliant writing. And yet, at the same time, it had that classic feel of Star Wars Mission Impossible. Like, how could they possibly get out of this? They're in the middle of a Death Star. How are they going to escape? You know, I mean, and yet he finds a way. They're stranded in the middle of space with no ships. And yet, how are they going to get out? And the way they do it is gloriously epic. And these are the kind of things that stick with me. And then, and then you have Betrayal. And, you know, yeah, I mean, a lot of those plot points were given to him. But the way he executed it, I mean, I that moment i was like is luke ever gonna is this it for luke is he not ever gonna be an actual quote-unquote jedi i mean is he out of the order is he a jedi on the rogue I mean, just the way it was going with that was insane you know and fury oh man i still to this day there there are songs that come on the radio that remind me of the scene when jason solo fired on the millennium falcon and, and donut hold it and killed the nagri bodyguards and then laid waste to kashik i just all of that was just so incredibly insane. The the the, I don't know. It, it just the way he captured me in those moments. You know, that's the profound part. And I know I'm not alone in that. I know many other people out there felt the same way. Mercy Kill is another one of them that just you know, he Mercy Kill and I think it was Iron Fist. You know, two of my favorite books in the aspect of they have really good deaths that just tore me up left me on the ground sobbing bawling like my best friend had passed away i mean i mean still to this day i have a model of a death star not a death star i have a star destroyer that i have in my studio and i will i will occasionally sit underneath it and look up and that scene between ton and face runs through my mind and what ton told face about you know living and all that it, it just it, it could have been a, a TV episode. Like the way he wrote it was just so powerful. And then when you get to Mercy Kill and and the fact of the Mercy Kill, you know what it that did to Piggy and the fact that it had to be Runt. And oh God, I mean, it, 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 that's what gets me too. I mean, that book was so detached from the others, such a far period of time away. And they do a flashback back to the New Jedi Order, which which I loved. I just absolutely love the fact that he did that flashback. So people say that doesn't happen in Star Wars, but I don't know, man. When we get to that moment, the fact that it was so far away and it still just tore me up like like I had been just with these guys in solo command, you know, I mean, or, or even in the New Jedi Order during those books when they were showing up there. I mean, you know, when when they crash the Lusquenia and take that out and Wedge, you know, drives the needle hard of it into the Vong ship and all that stuff. I mean, all classic moments for me in my fandom, you know, I mean. 
and again, to those of you guys that were able to get pictures with him, to get to sit down and talk with him and, and, you know, get to pick his brain and things like that. You are the blessed few. And, you know, especially you podcasters out there, you know, if you guys were able to sit down and chit chat with him at, at lunch table or dinner table, and he never shared anything with you guys that just was like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, you guys should write posts and make episodes and stuff about that. Do tribute episodes, you know, I mean, because that's the kind of stuff that, that with him gone on this world, the rest of the fans are never going to get. You know, you could be selfish about it and keep it to yourself, but share the love because, you know, not everyone's going to get that chance. Yeah, I have to say it was – I was I was uh, a little bit uh, I guess trepidatious, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, when I first found out that somebody new was going to be writing X-Wing stuff, you know, um, Michael Stackpole had been sort of the mainstay of X-Wing stuff for Star Wars. You know, back in the early Bantam days, you had sort of names that you associated with things. You know, kind of like you see now still sometimes where certain writers will tend to stick to certain groups of characters. You know, uh, Timothy Zahn can't get away from Mara Jade or Thrawn, etc., etc. Um, or, or the idea of the 501st now, I guess. Um, you know, Kevin J. Anderson oftentimes is tying things back into Exar Kun, the Sith Wars, Kip Duran showing up, that sort of thing. Um, and for the X-Wing pilots, even though there wasn't a lot of character crossover between the X-Wing comics and the X-Wing novels, it was always Michael Stackpole whose name was, was very much associated with it, you know, rightly so, having written the first four of those novels. And then apparently as time commitments became making it, uh, it became difficult for him to be able to continue fleshing out that series with even more novels, um, they turned to Aaron Alston. And it wasn't quite sure what to make of it. The fact that the series was focusing on a new squadron we had never heard of, Wraith Squadron, had me a little bit concerned. Um, but it was a concern that didn't really need to be there. I mean, he made for um, a very different feeling three books in his Wraith Squadron books, but a welcome change. I don't think I'm ever going to feel quite as connected to the characters in the Wraith Squadron books as I was to the Rogue Squadron books, because they were my first rogues, so to speak. Um, kind of like the first Doctor you ever spend time watching with Doctor Who. They're the ones I latch onto. But at the same time, the humor that came across in the Wraith Squadron books uh, managed to make it an extremely enjoyable experience reading these. And I've now read these things multiple times at this point. Um, a few years back, I mean, gosh, it's probably been, what, 2008-ish, maybe now, give or take 2009 or so, um, I had a chance to help out with the Essential Atlas. And one of the things that they asked me to do, in fact, the main thing they asked me to do was, hey, let's take these battle maps that are going to be in the Atlas that show certain periods of Star Wars combat, and let's take at least a few of them and give them actual in-universe battle dates. So it really feels like a historical document that we're looking at here, not just something that is uh, a fan production. Let's make it feel like it was real and you can track the time of these events, especially if a particular book series has a lot of time references in it. And the first one that was sort of our test run was the Road to Coruscant map that's in the book. That required going back and reading or rereading stuff from the early X-Wing books by Stackpole. But then, as things moved along, we moved on to the Thrawn trilogy uh, and before heading into the New Jedi Order, which in a lot of ways was Eddie Vanderheiden doing a lot of the legwork on that, um, 
we did the hunt for Zinge. And that one required me going through and rereading the last couple of Stackpole's X-Wing novels, at least at the time, at the time of, of uh, uh, when Zinge started to show up as part of the, the Wraith Squadron novels. Um, and then picking up there, reading all the Wraith stuff over again, leading into and then rereading Courtship of Princess Leia. And there were times where even reading the Thrawn trilogy, which I'm a big fan of, not so much a lot of his other works, but a big fan of the Thrawn trilogy, um, it felt somewhat like a slog from time to time, going through and making reference. Okay, here's this battle, it's on the same day as this other thing that happens, and there's a reference that it's been a month since, or a week since, or this is the next morning, to try to work out and figure out where the heck all these dates fall, not just in a year, but on an actual calendar of this day of this month type of things. Um, it felt like a slog. But never really so much when going back and reading the X-Wing Wraith Squadron stuff by Alston. Um, they're entertaining enough that on multiple read-throughs, even when you're basically using them as research, they still manage to draw you in. Those, to me, are still some of the strongest stuff that he put out there. In fact, my fav one of my favorite Star Wars novels is one of his, but it's one that's probably the least impactful of all the stuff he's ever written. Starfighters of a Dumar. You know, it's got the scene of, you know, I'm, I'm so sick of being nice and polite, and, you know, aren't we so polite as we now kill each other, etc., etc. You know, I want to hit something, I want to kill something. Um, he's able to take a situation that is essentially a throwaway story and turn it into one of the most enjoyable Star Wars reads and rereads that are out there simply by virtue of the humor and characterizations that he gives in this time in which it is in many ways disconnected from the other X-Wing books. Um, at the same time, as you said, there are these gut-wrenching moments he's able to pull off. Um, it's, it's not so much that the humor makes these funny books. They're not comedies, by any means. Uh, it's not like you're, you're reading a Star Wars sitcom. But instead, it's much more like the original Star Wars films, the original three, um, in that it gives you those highs and lows. It, it gives you the humor that shows the humanity, but also the tragedy that shows it. Um, I would still argue, I think as, as, as Mark would, that the deaths of Runt and Ton Fanon are two of the only deaths. I wouldn't say two of the deaths in Star Wars that hit me emotionally the most. No, this is fiction in a fictional universe. Honestly, it's hard for me to get heavily emotional about a lot of the characters. Discussing the storyline, sure. The chronology, sure. Individual characters, it really takes a lot because of how... Uh, they sort of change characterizations depending on who's writing them sometimes. And some of them feel like they are immune, like the big three, to very much tending to happen to them outside of, say, Crucible. But those two deaths are two of the only deaths in all of Star Wars publishing, at least, that actually gets a heavy emotional reaction out of me any time that I read them. They are gut-wrenching. But in a good way, you know, they're, they're gut-wrenching in an emotional impact sense, but at the same time, that's showing you how well-written it is and that it's able to hit you uh, quite that hard. Um, well, and those aren't, those aren't deaths like, like what we've got in New Jedi Order with Anakin Solo's death or, or with Mara Jade later where, you know, people were accusing those deaths as just being publicity stunts. You know, that was not the case here. I mean, it served the story and it served the purpose of what he was trying to show, too. Yeah, but I mean, there's a lot of characters that die within Star, especially if we're looking at the prequel era, there's a lot of characters that die. Uh, but it's rare for me to get that real heavy emotional kick from a character death. Usually it's from a self-sacrificing heroic move or something, or it's an interrelation between two characters that gives me the more emotional kick. Um, 
to have it be a kick in the, and I'm, by kick, I don't mean like kick like excitement, I mean kick like kick in the balls. Um, uh, the uh, emotional groin pull, as my friend Chris used to say back in the day in high school, um, it's, it's one of these things that, that I would put on par with um, seeing Obi-Wan's reaction to the death of Satine, uh, seeing Ahsoka Tano walk away from the Jedi Order, um, and the last scene between her and Anakin in the Clone Wars. Um, and usually it takes video. It takes a more immersive video experience for me to be able to get those types of effects from things. I mean, the end of the last episode of Quantum Leap still damn near brings me to tears every time. But it's hard for me for some reason to get that with books, which is funny because books are so much more based on imagination, have so much more depth possible to them. Um, but for some reason, that's just kind of the way that it plays out for me. And his managed to pull that off. Like I said, it might as well have been on film for how detailed a, a mental image it gives and the emotional impact, the emotional resonance, uh, resonance that it has. Story resonance-wise... I would say that it's kind of, again, this is a guy who sort of outstrips the limitations of where he was. Um, a, before, let, tell you what, before we look at specific characters and, and continuity impact, I wanted to look at one of these things that, that's sort of a, this is what we expect, but it's not there sort of thing. Um, I think I said it earlier, I believe. Mark, without looking, could you tell when Alston entered writing for Star Wars and how long he had writing for Star Wars before the jump to Del Rey? Just on, on sheer guesswork and intuition here as opposed to looking it up. Could, could you answer that question? Wait, when did he start writing Star Wars-specific books? When did he write, start writing Star Wars-specific books, and for how long was he able to do that before the jump to Del Rey? Oh. Any guesses? Jeez. No, I mean, I would, I would say it's got to be close to the late end of the 90s because – I came in, start reading books right around 98 or so, but I, I came back and found his books. So I, I don't know. I would say like 97, maybe 90, 96. It's actually, believe it or not, it's even later than that. And this blew me away because when we think of Alston, he is one of the few writers who makes the jump, right, between Bantam Spectra and Del Rey. Uh, now, of course, they're both owned by Random House, but that was a big deal at the time, the shift in... Uh, publishing names because it also marks somewhat of a shift in focus because that's when New Jedi Order really got going. His first Star Wars novel, Raid Squad, was in 1998. By comparison, oh, wow. Vector Prime and Del Rey taking over was late 1999. He got basically a year to a year and a half, give or take, two years at the most, in which to be writing for Bantam. And yet, we think of him as one of the big Star Wars names of that era. That was a time when Star Wars novels in the same series didn't come out a year apart. A lot of times they came out multiple times in the same year. Wraith Squadron and Iron Fist were both in 98. Solo Command and Starfighters of Adumar were both in 99. Then eventually once you get going with the New Jedi Order, it makes more sense to have multiple paperbacks by someone in a year because each year mark was the new hardback. But again, it was Rebel Dream, Rebel Stand within the span of 2002. Um, it's only later that we start to see them spread out uh, a little bit more, at least by the same author, because we start seeing those alternating series like Legacy of the Force uh, that began in 2006 and uh, Fate of the Jedi that began in, in 09. But it's it struck me because I kept thinking, I would swear that this guy, being such a prolific and well-thought-of Star Wars author, must have written a lot of short stories in his time with Star Wars. I'm just having trouble naming them, I guess. Turns out, 
No, because all right, he does do two short stories for Insider, ones that wound up tying into the Clone Wars because by then, by the time that they, they brought the short stories into Insider, jumping over from Gamer and all that stuff, the Clone Wars publishing line was going on. So we had the Pengallon train off and League of Spies in 03 and 04. But by coming into Star Wars in 98, that means he came in after the three main anthologies we think of. Tales from the Most Isaac Cantina, Tales of the Bounty Hunters, Tales from Jabba's Palace, although the latter two reversed in the order they were released. Um, that meant that also, not only did he not get a chance to write for those, even the official Star Wars Adventure Journal from West End Games was over by then. And we had two more anthologies, Tales from the Empire, Tales from the New Republic, but those weren't original stories in most cases. Tales from the Empire was totally culled from the Adventure Journal, and Tales of the New Republic were stories called from the Adventure Journal's previously published stories and stories that were presented for it and created for it, but not published previously because the, the series, the Adventure Journal, got canceled. Um, I guess that is sort of telling, I guess, to, to the quality level and, and to how ubiquitous he feels to us, that it seemed to me like it was a no-brainer. He must have written for the other anthologies, only to realize that he came in so late that he hadn't. Um, that and I don't know. That struck mm -hmm. me. I look back at those adventure journals. And I see people like Kathy Tyers, Barbara Hamley, Timothy Zahn, all these early Bantam writers who wrote their novels, but then also got a chance to write in the adventure journal or for the anthologies. And I just think that's sort of par for the course for Bantam era, but not for Mr. Alston, which was I gotta say it was a shock to me to realize it wasn't a memory issue with me. It literally was that he never had that opportunity. Yeah, I, I too thought that he had wrote some of the tales of stuff. I always had the impression that him, Zahn, and Stackpole all used to sit down together and role play and then wrote their characters and stuff from the game into the stories because they had that same kind of feel, which, you know, what you had just said kind of brings me back to a conversation I'd had recently with David Sendon. Uh, he was talking about how, uh, you know, the films have always made everything more vibrant and brought things to life that they, we were visually drawn to Star Wars in that way. And I think that that's probably like how you said with, with Alston's work, how he kind of nailed that, you know, he was one of those examples of the EU that, that could bring you in through the words on paper and could let your imagination visually put out there what he was putting down on paper in a way that it came across just like a movie, because that's how I always felt with his stuff. I really felt like it was just as exciting as watching any of the shows that I've been seeing. I mean, especially when you get to, to the race squadron, when you get to the one where, where they take over that, that ship and they uh, modify the headhunter and stuff. The, I believe it was the night crawler, night caller is what they called it. But I still to this day, like I absolutely love, they welded brackets on so they could park the X wings in there. They, uh, they took the escape pods and they jettisoned them off and they, they attached these uh, little wings on the ones that were still there. And they had the tie fighters that they'd stolen attached to, to have rapid docking. I mean, it was like, Ooh man, this is so cool. And, and, you know, he did something similar in uh, enemy lines where he had wedges group create the inner circle which I remember at the time that that happened, I felt like that was like, this is what Star Wars needs, you know? And I was kind of bummed when they moved out of the New Jedi Order that Wedge's inner circle, that whole plot got dropped because it was like the whole purpose of the inner circle was when the poodoo hits the fan that these group get to, I mean, this is the Rick Grimes group of Star Wars here. These guys are going to get together and they're going to wipe out the zombie hordes. I mean, <laughs> so it, somebody's going to lose a hand. Somebody's going <laughs> to lose an eye. Somebody's constantly going to, to be neglected by his mother. <laughs> lose a leg here or there. I mean, but yeah, yeah I mean, that's uh, 
the realism that came from his work put him right immediately on par with names like Stackpole, with names like Zahn. I mean, the, always has has he been up there with those two in my mind. And and it wasn't until you put the list up here, I'm just like, wow. You know, I, I really thought he'd done a lot. I mean, yeah, you see in the front of the covers, it's got listed in the books and stuff. But I, I don't know, maybe I didn't correlate it. I just thought there was another list somewhere. I really legitimately thought he had some tales. Or had done some more stuff in the RPG world. Because, you know, Zon's stuff, you could tell that, that you know, he, his checking out that stuff helped quite a bit. And so, you know, Alston had to have grabbed some of it because there's just so depth of, of the little nuances to what, you know, you and I would consider EU-only kind of things, you know. I mean, things that were only available at that time in the role-playing books, you know. The West End Games and the Wizards of the Coast. I guess it was Wizards of the Coast. West End Games wasn't wasn't around then but i mean there was a lot of that that he seemed to have just jived right into locked into and knew how to throw it down in a way that that just inspired and allowed the imagination to just run with it because like i said i i still those scenes especially in race squadron i just they're burnt in i mean there are other books that i look back and i I vaguely remember certain plot points but i don't remember much beyond that you know, and this one, wow, it was like, holy cow, the details that I remember of, of his books. And Starfighters of Adamar, I mean, that one too, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, that has a special place for me because I love the way that you got this world that's kind of neutral. You've got the Empire trying to lure them in and you got the Rebels, well, they're now the New Republic trying to lure them in. And the fact that they're just trying to be nice and yet the Imperials are only trying so hard Oh, man, that whole book, you know, is one of those where you just wanted to reach in and just start slapping some Imperial around yourself. You know, when it finally happened, you're like fist pumping, you're like, yeah, give it to him. Give it to him. Good. And, and that was that's what I'm going to miss is is those types of stories coming my way. I mean, yeah, I'm always going to be able to grab these and reread those and they'll always be near and dear to my heart. But, you know, the thought of newer stories continuing on and moving forward being gone. I mean, that's just ah, it's just terrible to. uh Terrible, terrible tragedy all the way around, you know. I mean, I just – that gets back to the human aspect of things. I mean, you know, I can't even begin to think what his family has been going through and all that. I mean, at least, you know, the community that that he has been embraced by is such a loving and giving community that hopefully they were able to kind of lessen the burden of everything that was going on for them because that's just that's just one of those things that you don't wish on anybody. Absolutely. This certainly, uh, I I would hope that the fan community's outcry is not the right word. Just outpouring of support um, and and grief was something that would have helped the family. I would I would fear that in this day of social media, it might be the opposite. That that sometimes we might see the passing of someone, and social media makes it, uh, it an event more than a tragedy and that social media could turn it into something where it's much more focused on um, the circumstances of death and sort of everybody trying to get their own I mean, kind of like, I mean in a, in a sense in a way I mean we're trying to show appreciation here I'm I'm hoping we're not coming off as as this but we have those times where people essentially turn a death of someone into well you know here's what he meant to me and therefore here's all this focus on me using this tragedy essentially just to stand at the edge of the spotlight uh, in a sense uh, or to put extra weight on a family going through grief of, of how do we deal with this I had a, an old friend that I've known since or had known I guess um, since preschool what 
a lot of folks around the country would call pre-K, who passed away um, in the last year. And there was a, a lot of this same kind of outpouring, albeit on a smaller scale, not, not within a fandom or anything, but there was this sense of, well, now what? How does her family deal with even something as simple as, what do you do with her Facebook page? Um, uh, you know, there's sort of this era in which social media connects us all more, even if it's often in more of a superficial sort of way. Um, but it, I, I have to wonder about a family going through something like this, where their suffering, so to speak, is less in, uh, in public. Uh, it's more private, but there is a more public outpouring. Um, I will say he was not married. I don't believe he had any children, um, which might soften the blow in a sense in that, in that there wasn't an immediate family going through it in that way. But certainly, uh, you know, any siblings, uh, any parents who were still living, other family members, um, and just close friends. Again, I, I'm reminded of Janine being someone who was very close to him, not a family member, but in many ways uh, kind of might as well have been in terms of the connection. Uh, it's like what often happens in life, right? You wind up with people who are friends of yours or, or colleagues of yours sometimes that are closer to you than members of your own family. Uh, it, it, certainly, I have a lot of people that I know that are friends who I'm much closer to than, say, you know, cousins or aunts, uncles. You know, there's that nuclear family, and then there's, uh, there's those you choose to associate with because you can't choose family. You choose um, you know, friends and, and who it is you're going to spend time interacting with. Um, one thing that came up, well, I guess, uh, to deviate briefly uh, uh, here, remind me when we are wrapping up the show that uh, you've put a new uh, Walking Dead Star Wars joke in my head that will, that I want to get out before my brain explodes. Um, but something that you had said kind of struck a, a chord within me. He was someone who was heavily, heavily into... The role-playing world, um, champions, uh, things like that, things that he spent a lot of time in, both creating content for, developing systems for, and yet he came in in 98 writing for Star Wars, right around the time that West End Games was losing the license as it jumped to Wizards of the Coast, who then relaunched Star Wars as a role-playing game with their D20 system uh, in 2000. One would have thought that that would have been his bread and butter, that this would have been a chance to bring in someone who is established now as a fiction author within Star Wars to also contribute perhaps to its role-playing game uh, as a way of bringing a lot of attention to it. You know, kind of like having Timothy Zahn write the opening story and the ending story of the Dark Strider campaign back when West, uh, West End Games was doing it. And yet, no, uh, he was not someone who, who did that sort of weird straddling of the gaming for Star Wars versus uh, the this, this prose fiction writing. He's also not someone who delved into Star Wars comic writing. Um, and, and that's where another one of those things about how prolific of an author is he. 13 novels, that's a lot of novels. Then you step back and try to compare that to, you know, how do you compare that to the number of comic issues written by, say, a John Ostrander or a John Jackson Miller uh, or some of the people from back in the Marvel days, like Mary Jo Duffy. It's not an easy comparison to make. That's why I think it's much more about quant uh, quality than it is about um, uh, quantity. Um, in his case, I would also say, though, that while he didn't do anything with the RPG, which would require a lot of coordination, it's a, certainly a different environment for writing, he, I don't, I'm not sure that he 
is given enough credit. I'm not sure any of the Star Wars authors a lot of time are given enough credit for writing with others. For the ability not just to write in a shared universe, but to write a shared series. Um, of the shared series of Star Wars, there are three major ones, right? New Jedi Order, Legacy of the Force, and Fate of the Jedi. You can maybe include Clone Wars and such in there as well. Um, but those three, he had two books out of 19 and one, right? Not as big of an impact. But then when we get to Legacy of the Force and Fate of the Jedi, he is constantly having to coordinate with two other authors, writing often at the same time, writing based on story points that have to be hit while still trying to create something that is entertaining and um, surprising in and of itself. Writing the first, fourth, and seventh books in all three of those, always having to be the opener, never having to be the closer, and having to coordinate with uh, what appears to have been sort of a more easier, and uh, a more easier, yeah, because that's proper English, um, what seems to have been an easier time with Fate of the Jedi coordinated with Troy Denning and Christy Golden, but also what must have been a tougher time because of her extreme <laughs> Mandalorian focus and very different writing style, coordinating also with Troy Denning and Karen Travis in Legacy of the Force. That is not an easy thing to do, and yet it. Well, I, I think those books, they, they've always felt like they are weaker books compared to his X-Wing books, but I don't think it's because the books themselves are weak. Because I think even dealing with Fate of the Jedi, which was a weaker series, I think, than Legacy of the Force, he managed to do quite well in each of his three books in it. I think it's just the fact that he didn't have complete control over the story points like he would have back with X-Wing. He, he was somewhat constrained in what he was doing. But yeah. a lot of credit has to be given for the ability to work in that type of environment and still put out quality work. Yeah, absolutely. That that one especially kind of comes to mind. I mean, I always was kind of thinking how how different those series would have been if Denning and him switched places. You know, I've always I've always said I love Denning, but I've always felt his closes were weak. Whereas Alston's always provided for me well round coverage when it comes to my book. So I was always curious how differently that would have felt had Denning stuff led the game. You know, <laughs> instead of Denning wrapping things up there at the very end. Uh, you know, another thing, though, that, that I, I wasn't aware of was that, that Alston began writing at the age of 11, his first short story at 14, and his first novel at 16. Like, I mean, I was I, – that's insane. That's awesome. I mean, that just, again, shows you how, you know, when a driven mind is driven to something that they love and they pursue it, how great it will become. And one other thing I should probably mention as we're, I guess, kind of rounding things out here is that, uh, as you, I think, alluded to as well, uh, this was also someone who recognized that writing in a shared universe, uh, which is basically what this is. I mean, we've talked about this when we talked about Vector. Star Wars isn't about crossovers, per se. It's a shared universe where you've got all these different characters in this whole universe available to writers of pretty much any story. Uh, and they do impact each other, but it's not like, well, here's this, you know, here's the Iron Man series, and here's this character over here from Spider-Man, and we're going to have Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man show up in Iron Man, and that's a crossover. Or we're going to have Spider-Man show up briefly in Iron Man. That's a crossover. No, it's it's kind of all Star Wars, and the characters don't so much crossover as they live in that shared universe. And he, you made the, you made the comment earlier about uh, Razor's Edge. Razor's Edge being a standalone Star Wars novel, which it really is. It connects to virtually nothing. Um, and it appears to have only the most basic, basic of research done in any way 
on anything Star Wars related to make it work. Um, it could be a very generic sci-fi novel. If you just change a couple of ship names and a couple of character names, you would never know that book was a Star Wars book. Um, and that's something that can happen if you're writing in a shared universe and you either don't do a lot of research or you're someone whose research is only cursory. Like, I would bet that the writer of Razor's Edge, uh, Martha Wells, probably watched the films over and over again, especially the classic trilogy, over and over again. I can't imagine that she ever picked up a Star Wars EU novel until she wrote one. Or that she did a lot of research into EU stuff. She, it was more, I would bet she more was using a source book of vehicles and that sort of thing. Um, or an essential character guide to use to figure out, you know, well, we're going to have Vanden Willard in here because that's what that guy's name was who was, who talked about, you know, fearing the worst when Alderaan was destroyed um, back in A New Hope. Alston was the opposite of this. He's not the Lucinopedia in the sense of, of James Lucino adding references all over the freaking place to make everything feel like it's very connected, uh, almost like a, like twisted knots together. But he did a lot of research into the books, the films before he started to write them. Um, he did research into characters. He even went so far as to do things like play the X-Wing game um, to, uh, to figure out a certain aspects of aerodynamics when dealing with vehicles of approximately the same size and such. Um, he was someone who, in this rather large and sprawling universe, even at the time when he started writing back in 98, I mean, we had had, you know, seven years of expanded universe comics and novels at that point, and that was around the time they started tinkering with bringing in stuff like the Marvel uh, comics as well and that sort of thing. Um, he was someone who took the time to do the research to make sure that what he presented was consistent with what was happening around it in that universe. It still had his own unique flavor, especially the X-Wing stuff. But it was consistent not because he avoided having to look things up so much as he just took the time to look things up. And that's another thing that I've always felt is uh, I can appreciate in a Star Wars Expanded Universe author, someone who doesn't shy away from it. They don't necessarily grab a bunch of stuff like adding Han and Chewie into Death Troopers to say, see, see, we've got Star Wars characters too, as, as a way to make a connection, but at the same time, doesn't do something so antiseptic and disconnected from everything like Razor's Edge that it feels meaningless. Um, even his disconnected, or most disconnected stories, Mercy Kill and Starfighters of a Dumar, I would argue, still have that sense that they're in a lived-in universe and they carry the weight of the saga with them even when they're telling stories that didn't necessarily need to be told to understand other ones around them. Um, again, another thing that's that's it is sometimes lacking within various franchises uh, that he did very, very well. Now, before we leave this topic here, what three books of his off his list would you say are your favorites? Uh, for me, I'm going to say, in, and in no particular order, uh, well, no, no, I'll try to do it in an order. I'm going to go straight down the list in this regard. In fact, it's going to be Iron Fist, Starfighters of Adamar, and Mercy Kill. Those ones, for me, were probably the most profound out of this list. It's not to say I didn't enjoy all of them, but those are my stand standalone three. You know, this one's kind of tough. Um, Starfighters of a Dumar stand out, stands out to me as just one of the most fun Star Wars novels I've ever read. So that's definitely in that top three. Uh, I would add Mercy Kill 
probably into that, uh, which is funny because Mercy Kill, it doesn't, it, it didn't totally capture the feel of the old Wraith Squadron stuff for me, and I wasn't nearly as engrossed in the characters of that book as with the characters in the old Wraith Squadron stuff, even in the first Wraith Squadron book. Um, but the the intercutting uh, from the Yushan Vong War to after the events of Fate of the Jedi and the emotional groin pull, so to speak, of what happens within those flashbacks and the understanding of what happened with uh, flashbacks, things like flashbacks, uh, the, the emotional impact of the flashbacks and the way it ties in things, uh, that was was excellent. So I'd probably have to put that into that top three. Beyond that, it's tough. It would have to be at least... I mean, I, I probably would just go with uh, whichever Wraith Squandra book, and my apologies, I don't recall off the top of my head which one it is. I'm sure Mark probably knows. Um, where Fanon dies because of the emotional impact of Iron that. The ju- that is, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the juxtaposition of the humor with that. I mean, all of the... The, if I could take the Wraith Squadron books and lump them together, I would still put all of them above his work with Legacy of the Force and his work with Fate of the Jedi. And I love Legacy of the Force. That is my favorite of the long-running Star Wars book series. Um, much better than Fate of the Jedi, and I like it quite a bit more than I liked New Jedi Order. Um, but I would still say that when he was given uh, the leave to really just kind of do his thing without a lot of specific plot points to hit to hand off to others... He managed to really knock it out of the park. Um, yeah. So yeah, beyond Mercy Kill, I would say that all three of mine are X-wing books, and beyond Mercy Kill, they are both um, from his first two years writing from for Star Wars, ninety-eight and ninety-nine. Yeah, and the other thing great about about those books is that he proved you didn't have to have Force-using Jedi as the main characters to drive a Star Wars book. I mean, that I know a lot of people, they love the X-Wing books just for that alone. And then some people, oh, Grand Horn and Rogue Squadron. And it's like, well, Ray Squadron didn't have... I, I don't know. I, I just, for me, those ones were always going to be my my faves. I, I did love what happened in the other books and stuff. And the characters, that he, I mean, he created so many really cool characters all the way around, you know, in situations. I mean, uh, Talon Squad, when, when uh, Talon Squadron got decimated, that was a great scene. You know, I mean, just... The way it impacted the characters. And that was a lot of the stuff, too, was that the events that happened to these characters didn't just shape them, but it continued to shape them. And I, I think that, too, was something for me. Like, when we got to Mercy Kill, it, was, it wasn't just so much about, you know, what's going on now, but what happened to everyone. And, and the way that they interacted and integrated it, like you said, really brought me into it. It was kind of like watching an episode of The Walking Dead where it's like, it just started, you're like, wait, what happened? And then they start bringing you back to it. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Whoa, did that just happen? You know, I mean, same thing for me with that. It was like, when we got to that moment with the mercy kill, I knew it was coming. And I was just tears streaming down my face. I'm just like, oh God, no. I set that book down for almost a week before I picked it up and finished that scene. And I knew it was coming. And every time I even got near it, I just started to tear up. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And that that was just, yeah, groin pull, man. Just a total groin pull. And that that for me, that's that's what I want from an author. I want an author that that can emotionally grab me, draw me in. And at the appropriate moment, just slap the ever-living tar out of me and just leave me sitting there reeling in the emotional pain that they've created by making me love these characters so much. And then the, the, the trauma that they put them through and the fact that I'm able to just 
follow along and just be tore up by that. You know, I mean, when I was younger, I didn't read that many books. And getting authors like this, because this, these are some of the first Star Wars books that I read after Air of the Empire and stuff. I mean, this was like, oh, my gosh, these books are so awesome. And you just, you know, the world was wide open with if, if this is what Star Wars books are like, you know, then everything's gold. You know, I mean, I would talk about a golden age there, man. I would recommend to folks out there, um, if you have read all of Mr. Austin's novels and uh, hearing about uh, well, hearing this episode uh, or his passing has caused you to want to read more of it, to have a full breadth and scope of having checked out his Star Wars work. There are those two short stories out there, but you're going to have to hunt down some issues of Star Wars Insider to get a chance to check them out. It's it's one of those things that happened when uh, they had reprinted these on hyperspace, but then when hyperspace went away and StarWars.com became that dumbed-down produced pictures website, as I sometimes call it, um, it lost that original fiction. Uh, and this is not one of the ones that showed up on Suvudu.com because it wasn't original to hyperspace. It was a reprint on hyperspace. Um, but you've got the Pengalan trade-off, which introduces Joram Kaith, who is initially basically an accountant for the Republic who gets pulled into the Clone Wars and such. That was in the... Um, uh, 65th issue of Star Wars Insider. Okay, so you can check that one out from back in 2003. And then League of Spies was from 2004. Uh, that continues Durham Kaid's adventures, but you really need to have read Pengalan Tradeoff first. Uh, that one was published in Star Wars Insider number 73. So granted, you'd be hunting down some back issues, but if you pick up Insider 65 and 73 and you've got those 13 novels that we talked about, you pretty much have the breadth and scope of Aaron Olsen's Star Wars contributions, and there's not really a bad one within the bunch. Uh, it's just a measure of sort of good to great, I guess is, is a way to put it, which is, uh, I'd say, probably the most uh, well-deserved and fitting epitaph I guess we could give uh, to Aaron Alston and his contributions to Star Wars, that while it was not nearly as large in breadth and scope as some others in terms of multiple media, in terms of more years, in terms of a lot of short stories to go along with a lot of novels. Um, the quality level was always high, uh, making it essentially a case of good to great, never quite something like middling to great, and certainly never uh, bad on the way up. Um, uh, one of the most solid Star Wars writers that the saga has seen, and certainly someone who will be missed uh, not just by, of course, his, his friends and loved ones, but also by the fandom community and expanded universe readers as a whole. Yes, rest in the force always. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom and our love for a great, great author. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can always find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. 
That's right. And since we're heading towards summer and we also have some new listeners jumping aboard at this point, uh, uh, let's do a quick rundown of the social media stuff. Don't forget, if you're really into the continuity and chronology stuff, like I am, uh, you can check out the Facebook page for my Star Wars Timeline Gold at facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold, all as one word. Uh, that also simultaneously put stuff out to Twitter through uh, SWFanWorks, at SWFanWorks, although I don't tend to use that as much at this point. It's more just for the cross-posting thing. Um, also, we do have that new show, Rebels Roundtable, which is on the way. We're in the process right now of recording our review of Clone Wars The Lost Missions, essentially as the last few episodes, a bonus uh, epilogue sort of few episodes, or encore few episodes of Republic Forces Radio Network, which will be released on that new Rebels Roundtable feed. Uh, you can go to rebelsroundtable.com. That will send you over to the Star Wars Report website for the show because the show is effectively the Star Wars Reports, Rebels Roundtable, um, which is the one reason why we're not completely up in arms over the title thing. Um, and then, of course, you can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, or on Twitter at Rebels Round. Uh, the first show should be showing up in that feed here in the near future, I believe uh, near the end of April, uh, as we start putting out those Lost Missions ones, and we'll be supplementing those with little bits where uh, Riley Blanton of the Star Wars Report talks to the individual members of the team that are coming back for Rebels Roundtable about uh, how they got into Star Wars, how their fandom is expressed, that sort of thing, to uh, introduce all the different players to the different audiences coming into the situation um, from both sides of things there. Uh, you can also, of course, follow my stuff on YouTube, like uh, Fantasy Fight Games, Star Wars materials reviews from the Star Wars library, from the Star Wars home video library, etc., etc., uh, all through username Chrono Radio on there. Uh, or simply go on there and look up from the Star Wars library, and you'll find one of my videos and be able to jump to it all from there. We are all over the place, and the amount of content being put out is only likely to ramp up, given the fact that we are finally just about six weeks away from what, for many of us, will be the summer break from either uh, teaching uh, or, in the case of uh, other podcasters out there, many of whom are much younger than us old guys, uh, of course, the summer break from being in school or college. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. They have a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one whole year, with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. Or hey, if you plan on doing a lot of yard work, Audible might be up your alley as well. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't put us the odds that you'll find this funny. <clears throat> what kind of Star Wars vehicle would Rick Grimes fly? Gee, I don't know, Nathan. What kind would Rick drive? A coral skipper. Ooh! Sorry, if I didn't get it out on air, it was going to drive me nuts all week. <laughs>
The only problem with the coral skipper is the, 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 the cognition hood to fly it looks like a, uh, a sheriff's hat, and uh, and you the, the flying is all screwed up depth perception because you only got one eye while you're flying it. Yeah. And you gotta fly it with one hand. <laughs> what are the odds of that? Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging with us. Because people hate us and they're going to... Because we need a good lynching every now and then. Lynch the bastards! They gripe about continuity! Lynch the bastards! We're so sick of hearing them complain about other podcasts that they've mentioned once and now twice, etc., etc. Them fracking you fans and their fracking continuity. Stop talking about comic artwork! Comics aren't about art! (laughs) 